My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, December 5th, 2012. We will be doing our light edition today, and i got to tell you, I'm excited about this lecture. It is fantastic. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. So what's with this whole sola scriptura thing anyway? Um, isn't that just some man-made doctrine? No, not at all. In fact, that's what we're going to be focusing on for the next two weeks. We're going to be listening this week and next week to two just ridiculously great lectures by Dr. Stephen Lawson. On on the name of the lectures, by the way, are Christ, the Reformers, and Sola Scriptura. And boy, are these barn burners. And I'm excited to play them for you. And here's the reason why is because you'll notice here at Fighting for the Faith that there's a rhythm and a flow to what we do, and we hit particular topics in, in, in like certain intervals. And the idea is this, is that you never move beyond the basics as a Christian. Um, I am not a believer in advanced theology. I don't think there is such a thing. I think there's theology, and uh, it's like Theology 101, and then you can take the different categories in Theology 101 and drill deep into the bedrock of those particular uh, theological categories, but it's still all the basics. Uh, The metaphor I like to use is the metaphor of baseball. Baseball players on the professional level play the same exact game that uh, uh, kids in Little League play. It's the same game. 
And so uh, you never, ever um, are going to outgrow the basics. And one of the, one of the reasons why I am just excited about these lectures by Dr. Stephen Lawson on Sola Scriptura is that he engages in a Christ-centered apologetic. Apologetic, by the way, Greek word for ready defense. And so what he's doing here is he's arguing out from Christ and proves from Christ and the scriptures that scripture alone is our authority. It's just absolutely fantastic. In fact, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. We're going to just dive right into it. We will take a break partway through, pay some bills and come back. But here is Dr. Stephen Lawson, um, part one of Christ the Reformers and Sola Scriptura. Here we go. I invite you to take God's word and turn with me to the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. And tonight I want to bring a message. If I was to put a title on this message, it would be Christ, the Reformers, and Sola Scriptura. And what we will begin to consider tonight, we will complete in the morning. And I want us to consider Christ, the Reformers, and Sola Scriptura. I want to begin by reading Matthew chapter 5 in verses 17 and 18 as really a launching point. And tonight we will be in many different verses, and some of them you'll turn to, others you'll just simply write them down, others you'll just listen to me read them. But I want to begin by reading these two verses as a way of introducing our heart and our mind to the subject tonight. Matthew 5:17 Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Arising from the Reformation of the 16th century, there came a battle cry that was sounded loud and clear. It was a trumpet blast that rallied the hearts of all who marched in this grand movement. This battle cry was the defining mark of the Reformation, and it led an advance that literally altered the direction of Western civilization and changed the course of world history. This battle cry was sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone. And there were four other solas which accompanied sola scriptura. And all five solas stood together as one statement of faith, as one declaration of faith. And these five solas all stand together or they fall together. The other four solas were solas Christos, meaning Christ alone. Namely, that salvation is found exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. There is not one drop of saving grace outside the person and work of Jesus Christ. Sola gratia, meaning grace alone, and sola fide, meaning faith alone, were the twin means by which this salvation in Christ is received by guilty, undeserving sinners. And the last sola is soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. 
And when the first four solas are put into place, they lead inevitably to the apex of worship and the declaration that all glory is from God. All things are from him and through him and to him. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But it was this first sola, sola scriptura, that uniquely became the defining sola of the Reformation. This was the watershed issue at the base level. This was the critical point. This was the determining factor. The Reformation at the beginning was an issue over authority in the church. The Roman Catholic Church certainly acknowledged the Bible, for Scripture possesses some authority they claimed. Rome said authority rested with the Bible and. The Bible and church tradition. The Bible and ecclesiastical councils. The Bible and papal edicts. And to this, the reformers said, no, the sole authority, the ultimate authority in the church is the Bible alone, not the Bible and. For Rome, the fact is this little word and became the tail that wagged the dog. This little word and became the competing authority over the word of God because of this little word and. Church tradition presided over the Word of God. And ecclesiastical councils ruled the Word of God. And the Pope took precedence over the Word of God. I want to remind us historically how this Reformation unfolded. October 31st, 1517. An unknown Augustinian monk named Martin Luther walked to the castle church and there nailed his 95 theses to the front door of the church. In this, there followed a series of debates, charges, and countercharges, and at the beginning, at the very heart, it was an issue over authority in the church. In October 1518, Luther met with the most learned theologian of the Rome Empire, Cardinal Cajetan. And in his discussion with Luther, Cajetan elicited from Luther his views on the infallibility of the Pope. Luther asserted that the Pope could err. He claimed that a previous Pope in 1343, Pope Clement VI, issued a bull, a papal bull, that was in direct violation of the Word of God. In September 1519, a dramatic encounter took place between Luther and a man named Johannes von Eck at Leipzig. And in this exchange, Eck drew out of Luther these two admissions. Not only could the Pope err, but the church councils could err and in fact have erred. It was here at Leipzig that Luther made this clear, unmistakable assertion that the Bible is the authority in the church. In April 1521, Luther was summoned to stand before the Diet of Worms, and the primary issue on the table was sola scriptura, 
And for Luther, this was the hill worth dying on. Luther stood sola. Luther stood alone before the church authorities and before Charles V, the emperor. Luther's, Luther's theological works were placed on a table before him as there were tiers of the ecclesiastical hierarchy that were gathered around, and Martin Luther was asked two questions. Number one, are these your writings? And number two, will you repent? The next day, Martin Luther gave this now famous declaration in which he said, quote, since then, your serene majesty and your lordships seek a simple answer. I will give it in this manner, not embellished, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason. For I do not trust either in the pope or in church councils, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradict themselves. I am bound to the Scripture I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, unless it is ne for it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I can do no other. Here I stand, God help me. Game on. And with these courageous words, sola scriptura was in the public debate and was in the ears of German people, and soon it spread to the surrounding nations, to France, to Switzerland. Soon it crossed the English Channel into Scotland and into England. The Netherlands and Holland came under the sway of sola scriptura until it washed up on the shores of America in the hall of the Mayflower as the pilgrims came seeking religious freedom with a Geneva Bible in their hand, wanting to worship God according to sola scriptura. This was the birth of this movement. A series of statements came forth from Protestant churches and the Reformers. The thesis of Byrne in 1528, quote, The church of Christ makes no laws or commandments without God's word. Hence, all human traditions, which are called ecclesiastical commands, are binding on us only. And there is that word sola. Only insofar as they are based on and commanded by God's word. A few years later. John Calvin went to Geneva, and there there was the drafting of the Geneva Confession. Section 1, sentence 1, begins. First, we affirm that we desire to follow Scripture alone as a rule of faith and religion without mixing with it any other things which might be devised by the opinion of men apart from the Word of God. The French Confession of Faith in 1559 says much the same. Let me read the first sentence. 
We believe the word contained in these books has proceeded from God and receives its authority from him. Now, here's our word alone. Every one of these statements were statements that stood on the shoulders of sola scriptura. And as they defined the true gospel of Jesus Christ, and as they brought into clarity the issues of the day, everything that they said, they sought to be defined and to be articulated by the word of the living God. There came in the Reformation this commitment to come back to the sole authority of the word of God. The Bible was translated into the language of the people. The Bible was preached as the centerpiece of the worship service. Pastors began to exposit through books in the Bible. All things in the church suddenly became regulated by the Word of God. The Psalms were sung in the worship service. Hymns were written to teach and to sing sound doctrine and strong theology. Children and new believers were catechized in order to be grounded in the Word. The pulpit was literally moved to the middle of the building so that every sight line in the entire worship sanctuary would intersect at this sacred desk upon which there was an open Bible. Bibles were printed with study notes at the bottom of the page. Bible reading, the reading of the Scripture in the public worship service, came back into the service. Theology was again restored to be the queen of the sciences. And the full counsel of God was taught, and the hard sayings of Christ were proclaimed. And not only did they stand on sola scriptura, they stood on tota scriptura, all of scripture. The full counsel of God from chapter 1, verse 1 in a book to the very ending of that book, no bullets would be dodged, no subject would be left unaddressed. All that the Scripture taught was brought to bear upon their lives and upon their heart. And as Philip Schaff says at the beginning of volume 7 of his monumental work on the history of the church, the Reformation became the greatest movement, spiritual movement on earth since the days of the apostles. It is by no happenstance that this movement was birthed in the womb of sola scriptura, and the church became the church, as they became now the sounding board for the word of God. I believe nothing is needed more across our land than for churches to come back to the Word of God, for the Word of God to be preached, for the Word of God to be taught, for the Word of God to be memorized, for the Word of God to be sung, for the Word of God to be embraced, for the Word of God to be obeyed, for the Word of God to be followed, for the Word of God to saturate the lives of true believers. If that were to happen we would see a reformation again in this hour. Now, tonight, as I speak on the subject of sola scriptura and speak on the ministry of the Word of God, many choices are before me regarding which direction to go. 
What I want to do tonight and what I want to do tomorrow morning is I want us to consider the commitment of the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. His commitment to the Word of God. Christ, who speaks with the sound of many waters and who drowns out every other voice. Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. I want us to consider tonight our Lord's commitment to sola scriptura. Our Lord's commitment to the centrality and the primacy and the authority of the Word of God. So, if you have... Your Bible, if you have your pen, if you've got a piece of paper to write down some headings, I want to give you several headings now that will define our Lord's commitment to the Word of God. Number one, Jesus Christ believed that the Bible is divine revelation. If you have your Bibles, you can be turning to Matthew chapter 4, just one page over in verse 4. But I want to begin by saying this. Jesus Christ was fully persuaded that the written word of God is divine revelation. It is the disclosure of the mind of God to men. It is the revelation of the genius of God to men. Theologians have helped us when they have reminded us that there is general revelation And there is special revelation. General revelation is God disclosing himself to us in general ways, in creation, in providence, in history. And in various ways, we can see what God is like. But there is special revelation that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the word, the written word of God. It is special in that it alone leads to salvation. It alone is able to to reveal the path that one must take in committing their life to Jesus Christ for salvation. Our Lord was committed to this. Jesus understood that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. That contained in the pages of Scripture is the voice of God that is heard in the soul far more loudly than if God were speaking audibly. And there are three titles for the Scripture that, uh, that will help us in understanding this. First of all, Jesus called the Bible the Word of God. This is under the heading, The Bible is Divine Revelation. Jesus affirmed that the Bible is the Word of God. It is not the Word of man. It is not the Word of culture. It is not the Word of religious tradition. It is none other, nothing less than the Word of the living God. Look at Matthew 4 and verse 4. Jesus, as you know here, being tempted... By the devil in the wilderness, we have on that last 40th day the climax of being tempted for 40 days. And Satan says, turn these, uh, turn these stones into bread. And in verse 4, Jesus answered and said, it is written, an appeal to the written objective word of God. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There you have it. 
what is written in the Bible comes from the mouth of God. It is the mind of God. It is the genius of God revealed to us. In Mark 7, in verse 13, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are invalidating the word of God by your tradition. And by identifying the Bible as the word of God, Christ affirmed that Scripture is not the word of man. It is not the wisdom of man. It is not the way of man. It is the way, the wisdom, and the way of God. And so, John 10, verse 35, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. In that verse, John 10, 35, Jesus identifies the scripture as the word of God. It is transcendent truth that has come down to us. It contains the objective divine standard for truth. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. Also, not only the Word of God, it is second called the commandment of God. In Matthew 15, in verse 3, Jesus said, Why do yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus understood that this divine revelation in Scripture is the commandment of God. It is not God's suggestions for life. It is not God laying out options for you to consider. They are the very imperatives of the voice of God. They are the very commandments of God. They are binding upon us and call for our fellowship. Also, it is, the Bible is called the law of God. It is divine revelation because it is the law of God. And we see that in Matthew 5. And in verse 18, the entirety of the Old Testament is called by Christ the law. And so what we see, number one, is what Christ affirmed is that the Bible is divine revelation. To read the Bible is to hear the voice of God. To understand the Bible is to know the mind of God. To believe the Bible is to trust the very Word of God. Now, number two, and closely related. Number one, the Bible is divine revelation. Number two, the Bible is supernaturally inspired. The Bible, Jesus says, has been given to us by divine inspiration. And as he will set this out, our Lord acknowledges the dual authorship of the Scripture, that there were human authors and there was one divine author. And the human authors are secondary authors. They are subsidiary authors. And there is one divine author who is the primary author of this book. So let's consider this. First of all, Jesus acknowledged that there were many human authors who wrote the Word of God. And we see their different vocabularies. We see their different uh, experiences that come out as they record the Scripture. Jesus acknowledged that Moses was a writer of Scripture, a secondary, subsidiary writer of Scripture. In Mark 7, in verse 10. 
Moses said, honor your father and your mother. Well, that is the fifth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 12. It wasn't even dictated to Moses. It was handed to Moses on tablets of stone. God was the primary author, honor your father and your mother. Yet Jesus acknowledged, for Moses said, honor your father and mother. In Mark 10, verse 3, he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? He understood that what Moses commanded was ultimately what God was commanding. In Mark 12, verse 26, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses? And the book of Moses here refers to the Pentateuch, the first five books in the Bible, and they stand together with unity. Luke 5, verse 14, go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded. Uh, John 5:46, John 7:19, John 7:23. All of these affirm the mosaic authorship of the first five books in the Bible. Also, Jesus acknowledged that David was a human writer of Scripture. Luke 20, verse 41, or 42. For David himself says in the book of Psalms. Jesus acknowledged that the Bible didn't just fall out of heaven. There were human authors, human agents, human instruments whom God used in the recording of Scripture. Also Isaiah, Mark 7, verse 6 and 7. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written. And Daniel in Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. So Jesus acknowledged these human authors, Moses, David, Daniel, Isaiah. But the fact is, there is only one primary author. And that is God himself, as God the Holy Spirit, acted upon the human authors such that what they wrote was inspired Scripture. Matthew 22, verse 43, is the classic text for this, in which Jesus said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? He is quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, one of the landmark psalms in the entire Psalter. And Jesus says that what David wrote in the book of Psalms, he did so in the Spirit. That means under the control of the Spirit, under the direction of the Spirit, under the influence of the Spirit, under the inspiration and the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. This is what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God, is theonoustos, is God-breathed. Second Peter 1, verse 21, says that holy men of God uh, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Same word is used in the book of Acts on Paul's journey to Rome when he was on that ship, and the wind came, 
And the wind filled the sail of the ship. And the ship now was suddenly impelled to move out in a direction that the wind was dictating. This is what God did in the minds and in the hearts of these human authors. God, the Holy Spirit, powerfully came upon them and and worked in them and through them such that the wind of heaven blew through them and they recorded the word of God without error and all that God wanted to be written in pages of Scripture. There is no other book like the Bible. This is God's book. This is uniquely God's book. So Jesus affirmed this, that the Bible is supernaturally inspired. We often use this word inspired in the, out in the culture. Someone will say, well, Shakespeare was very inspired when he wrote Hamlet. Or Bach was very inspired when he wrote this great musical piece. That is all on a natural level. That is a natural uh, inspiration. But what we are talking about here is a supernatural inspiration that goes far beyond giftedness, and it lies in God himself. Now, there's a third heading that I want us to consider tonight. Not only did Jesus teach, number one, that the Bible is divine revelation. He called it the word of God, the law of God, and the commandment of God. And not only second did he say that the Bible is uh, supernaturally inspired, but, but third, the Bible is verbally inspired. If you're still in Matthew, turn back to Matthew 4 and verse 4. As Jesus speaks to the issue of verbal inspiration, there are many liberal theologians today and there are many who masquerade in the church as those who would hold up the word of God. And they will say something like this, that only the general thoughts of the Bible are inspired and the vague ideas of the Bible are inspired. And just the basic concepts. In fact, even as they go to translate the Bible, it doesn't have to be a precise translation of the Scripture. But it can just be a dynamic equivalent that's, that's, that's much broader than what was originally written. And they talk about the Spirit of Jesus should lead us. Well, I want you to see in Matthew 4, verse 4, that Jesus would not succumb to any such double talk. Christ affirmed the verbal inspiration of the Bible, and by that we mean that every word of the Bible is inspired. Not merely its thoughts, not merely its broad ideas, but every word. Notice in this verse, Jesus said, it is written. So we are talking about the written word of God. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word. There it is. Specific words with precise meaning. But on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the metaphor here with the mouth of God is intended to convey Specific words that are actually spoken that are recorded for us in God's Word. 
As numbers are to math, so words are to language. And the specific meaning of those words are a part of the inspiration of Scripture. All right, we are going to pause this fantastic lecture on Sola Scriptura right there, and we are going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes, uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon, that's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. You, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package, sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. 
It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to meet its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Oh, well, well, I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop, and, uh, well, we're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Do you find it hard to shop for the geek in your life? Well, if so, we have got a fantastic new featured advertiser for you to visit. It's Think Geek. This is a well-thought-out and hilarious gift store. And what you need to do is visit our website first, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek, and then click on the ad banner, and then a portion of your purchase will actually go to support Pirate Christian Radio. Trust me, these gifts are hilarious, from wacky office gifts to Star Trek paraphernalia to Star Wars stuff, anything that would really kind of light up the life of the geek in your life. Trust me, you'll love it. They're smart funny, and the geek in your life will really enjoy them. Again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. All right, we're back. Warning, beware of people who say that, oh, they think the Bible is very important, but deny its inerrancy, sufficiency, and, well, would have you believe in other things on top of the Bible. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Have you considered giving the gift of Fighting for the Faith? Yeah, think of it that way, because what you're doing when you support us financially is you're making it possible for us to 
Keep doing what we're doing. Now, here's the fun part is that um, our bills are very much the same pretty much month to month. They increase a little bit every month. That's as a result of the fact that our audience continues to grow and, you know, things get more expensive over time. But month to month, I mean, our bills run pretty much the same, but our giving every month isn't always the same. So um, that's why we're constantly appealing for money because, well, we don't have a huge cash reserve as a result of it. We've got to pay our bills every month to keep bringing it to you. Think think of it like, you know, we run a tight financial ship. Uh, we do things on a shoestring budget. Yeah, it's it's all it's all it's all good. Um, but the, so here's the idea. When you support us financially, you give the gift of fighting for the faith, not only to yourself. If you're if you're enjoying this program and growing from it and benefiting from it and and going deeper into God's word as a result of it, having your eyes open, learning how to listen with discernment, well, then support us so that we can keep doing what we're doing as well as make our archives available for people for, you know, in, you know, for so that they when they run across fighting for the faith, they too can benefit from all of the episodes that we've put together. So. The way you support us is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. That's it. Just $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith, Pirate Christian Radio. And if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or Make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And don't forget, we still have those uh, Christmas bulbs available at our bake sale website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale. All right, here is the balance of this fantastic lecture on Sola Scriptura by Dr. Stephen Lawson. Here we go. Number four. The Bible is entirely inspired. Jesus believed in what theologians today call the plenary, the plenary inspiration of the Bible and plenary coming from a a Latin word meaning fullness, meaning all of the words, not simply the words, but all the words. Look in the same verse in Matthew 4 and verse 4. It is abundantly clear. And I, I want to give you some subheadings here as we think about It is entirely inspired. I want you to see that all of the words are inspired. And then I want to move down from that. But all the words are inspired. Look at this verse again. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word that is written. Do you see in verse 4, it is written? Every word that is written in Scripture proceeds out of the mouth of God. That was our Lord's fundamental commitment to this book. Some today say only parts of the Bible are inspired. They will say something like uh, the spirit and the ethics of the of the Bible are inspired, but, but not uh, the history or not the science or whatever. And they claim to be inspired to spot the spots that are inspired. Well, that is a violation of what our Lord is teaching here. You are in opposition to the head of the church. 
Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord of the church, has said, it is written, every word proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, we should treasure this book. There are no empty words in this book. There are no flat words in this book. Every word in this book is full of life and the wisdom of God. But not only are all of the words inspired, so also are all of the phrases inspired. Would you look at the next temptation while we're in Matthew chapter 4? Then the devil took him into the holy city, verse 5, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And so Satan will now try to fight fire with fire. And if the Lord is going to use the Scripture against him, Satan now will try to find common ground. You believe the Bible? Well, I believe the Bible too. Let me help you. God loves you, but I have a wonderful plan for your life. Let me use Scripture. And so he's a scriptural counselor. And so Satan quotes the Word of God. He quotes, He will command his angels concerning you. That's from Psalm 91, verse 11. And by the way, this presupposes how well the devil knows Scripture. He is stunningly brilliant. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. It all sounds so well. Jump. God, trust God. Jump off the temple. God will send his angels to catch you. But Satan, who is the corrupter of Scripture, who twists Scripture, intentionally left out a key phrase from Psalm 91, verse 11. He omitted these words, to guard you in all your ways. And that dramatically distorts the meaning of the promise. The true interpretation is that God will keep the righteous on their journeys, not that he will preserve them when they take foolish risks. No, even clusters of words are very important because they are all inspired by God. But not only that, not only words and phrases and every single word, but every letter of every word of every phrase is inspired. Come back to Matthew chapter 5, if you would please. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18, the text that we read to begin the message tonight. Our Lord makes a dramatic claim for inspiration as he goes beyond what he says in verse 4, in chapter 4, that every word is from the mouth of God. In Matthew 5:18, he says every letter of every word is inspired by God. Note what he says, for truly I say to you, and that is a way of saying, pay attention, what I'm about to say is of monumental and extraordinary importance. Truly, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, 
Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. You want to see the smallest letter in the Bible? Turn back to Psalm 119. Turn to Psalm 119 and verse 73. And if you have a translation of the English Bible, as I do, you have the Hebrew, the smallest Hebrew letter sitting above of this stanza in Psalm 119. As you know, Psalm 119 is an alphabetical psalm. It is made up of 22 stanzas. And there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And each successive stanza in this psalm begins with the next Hebrew letter. So the first stanza begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, each line in that stanza. And it systematically works its way through Psalm 119, and it's a twofold purpose. Number one, to aid the, the memorizing of this psalm. It's a memory aid, but second, it also reflects the perfection of this psalm, that every word, even every letter has been carefully measured by God as it is placed in His book here, down to the precision that every stanza begins with the next letter and it is laid out with absolute perfection. And as you look at verse 73, atop you will see the Hebrew letter Yod. If you're like me, you can barely read it. It is a tiny little eyelash of a letter. It is the same size and the same uh, symmetry of, of the apostrophe in the English language. That is the smallest Hebrew letter. And Jesus Christ said that this book is inspired by the living God down to the smallest eyelash of a verse, down to the smallest letter. But it's more than that. Keep your finger here in Psalm 119 and come back to Matthew 5 and verse 18. Stay in both of those texts, if you would please, for just a moment. And here's what I want to lay out. Inspiration extends not only to every word in the Bible, but to every letter of every word in the Bible. But there's more. To every stroke of every letter of every word in the Bible, that is the precision and the perfection of divine inspiration. Look at Matthew 5:18 again. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. A stroke is just a tiny little minuscule part or portion of a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Kind of like in the English language, the only thing that distinguishes a lowercase l from a lowercase t is just one tiny little stroke. That's all that distinguishes the lowercase l and the lowercase t in the English language, that little tiny stroke. Look in Psalm 119. I want to show you this. Look in verse 9. This begins the second stanza of this psalm. It's called the Baith stanza because each line of this 
stanza begins with the second Hebrew letter, the Beit. And if you have a picture of it in your Bible, and I hope you do, you will note up above it looks like a backward C, a small case C in the English language, backwards. And you're going to have to trust me on this. You're going to have to look very carefully at the base projecting out to the right. I can't even see it with my contacts on. I was looking for it on the plane flying in with my glasses. I was able to see it. There is a tiny little foot. There is a tiny little just bump that extends out. And that separates the base, that stroke, from, turn to page 81, uh, verse 81. Look at the, the stanza that begins in, in verse 81. It's the tenth stanza, and it begins with the tenth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And do you see at the, it too is a, a backwards lowercase c, but there is no tiny little foot on the right side at the bottom barely extending out. That's all that distinguishes the base from the cuff. That tiny little stroke, it's just, a, it's just a, a pinpoint attached to the base that separates it from a, another letter in the Hebrew language. Now look what Jesus said in Matthew 5.18. Hear it again. This is the precision with which divine inspiration is extended to the written word of God. Jesus said, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, or that's the yod, the little eyelash, the backwards apostrophe, or stroke, it's so small it's just a pinpoint, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Listen, Jesus Christ was not playing games with the Bible. Jesus Christ understood the doctrine of divine inspiration that what David wrote, he wrote in the Spirit, and what Moses wrote and Isaiah wrote and Daniel wrote and all the rest wrote, they wrote under the control of the Spirit of God who blew like the wind through them and ushered them and guided them and directed them that they might write using their own vocabulary and their own temperament and their own unique perspective the written word of God with absolute perfection. This is what Jesus believed. That is what all of us must believe, that the Bible is the inspired Word of God down to even its most minute parts. Oh, I have another heading to give you. Not only is the Bible divine revelation, and not only is the Bible supernaturally inspired, Verbally inspired, plenarily inspired, or entirely inspired. Number five, the Bible is specifically limited. It is specifically limited to those books that are in the canon of Holy Scripture. You have heard of the canon of Scripture. It comes from the Greek word canon, which means like a, a measuring rod or a ruler, like a 12-inch ruler that you would measure anything else. And everything else will be measured by this standard. The canon of Scripture were the tests of canonicity 
that would reveal and recognize which books were in the Bible and which failed to meet the test. The test. And in our English Bible in the Old Testament, there are 39 books, and these books were all acknowledged by Jesus Christ as being books that are in the canon of Scripture. Jesus believed that the Bible is specifically limited exclusively to these books that are in the canon of Scripture. Now, I want to begin at, at its broadest level and, and narrow this down. But Jesus referred to the Old Testament, first of all, in, in just one division. He said the whole Old Testament could simply be called the law. And that's the way it is used in Matthew 5 and in verse 18 to represent the entirety of the Old Testament. It is simply the law. Then second, Jesus designated the Old Testament with a twofold division, Moses and the prophets. For example, in Matthew 7, in verse 12, Jesus said, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Now listen to this. For this is the law and the prophets. He is saying this is a summary of the entirety of the Old Testament. Matthew 22, verse 40, makes this abundantly clear. Jesus, when asked, what are the two most important commandments? And you recall his answer. Number one, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all, and all of your strength. And the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The entirety of the Bible is contained in the law and the prophets. It's even more clear in Luke 24, verse 27, which reads, Then beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in, now listen to this, in all the Scripture. Moses and all of the prophets equals all the Scripture. In the time of our Lord before the New Testament was written. And by this, Jesus is affirming and validating the canon of Scripture for the Old Testament. Now, let me make it even more abundantly clear. You may want to turn to this verse. Luke 11. Luke 11 in verse 51. And as you're turning, Jesus did have a threefold division for the Old Testament as well. Luke 24, 44, in which he identified it as the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And the Psalms are singled out. I mean, you can go into a Christian bookstore and buy a New Testament and the Psalms. I mean, the Psalms are, are just such a critical part of the Bible. But I want you to note in Luke chapter 11... In verse 51, what Jesus does here in this verse is he puts his arms around the entirety of the Old Testament as it appears to us in our 39 books of the Old Testament. He is validating the Old Testament canon of Scripture, and he is excluding the Apocrypha. 
And so in Luke 11 and verse 51, Jesus makes this statement. It would be easy for this to remain under the radar and for it to pass our attention. But Jesus says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. That is a... That is a manner of speech. That is a signature phrase. That is like saying from the Atlantic coast to the Pacific. And by that, what you mean is from coast to coast and everything in between. That is like saying from A to Z. That is like saying from start to finish. Now, the blood of Moses, excuse me, the blood of Abel was shed in what book? was shed in Genesis. That is the first book in the canon. And then the blood of Zechariah was shed, not in Malachi, but in Second Chronicles, specifically Second Chronicles chapter 24. And in the Old Testament order of the books, we have them laid out in a very, in a very structured way. There are 17 books, then five books, then 17 books. We have the 17 historical books. We have the five uh, Hebrew poetry books, and then the 17 prophetic books, 17, 5, and 17. And each of these two sections of 17 break out equally, 5 and 12, 5 and 12. There are the five books of Moses, the five, followed by the 12 books of history from Joshua on through uh, uh, Esther. And then in, the, in the, the final prophetic section, you have the five major prophets and then the 12 minor prophets. So our Old Testament is laid out with a very uh, logical, structured order. But the Hebrew Bible was laid out differently. It was laid out chronologically. And the last book of the Hebrew Bible at the time of Christ was, you guessed it, Second Chronicles. And so when our Lord says, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, Jesus is putting his arms around the entirety of the Old Testament canon, those books that were regarded as inspired, and every book that is not within that, that uh, parentheses is not considered to be a part of the canon. And then our Lord, certainly the New Testament had not yet been written, but looking ahead to the writing of the New Testament, Jesus did make this statement in John 14 in verse 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, now listen to this, and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, I have to admit, I've tried to claim that verse before exams in seminary and uh, that the Lord would help me remember all that was in the Word, and that was uh, a misinterpretation and a misapplication of that verse. Now, we do have other verses in the Bible, as in Matthew chapter 10, that it says when you're delivered up before governors and you stand there to give a witness, that the Lord will give you in that day what you are to say. And I've certainly had that experience. I know you have in witnessing. And suddenly God just brings to the forefront of your mind just the right verse to insert in the presentation of the gospel. And that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit actively working through our minds. That's why in Ephesians 6, verse 17, it is the sword of the Spirit. 
which is the Word of God, and it's the sword that the Spirit puts into our hand at just the right time. But in John 14, 26, I think that our Lord is uniquely saying to these men in this upper room who will be writers of New Testament Scripture that they will be supernaturally led by God to remember the entirety of the teaching that Jesus said. There was uh, certainly research that went on in writing the New Testament books. Luke tells us in Luke 1, 1 through 4, that he researched it, he interviewed people, and did all of this so that his record could be laid out. And he certainly had Paul to help him, perhaps in Rome, in prison in Rome. But think of John. If Jesus was crucified in the year 30, and if Jesus wrote the Gospel of John sometime between 90 and 95 A.D., that is a span of some 60-plus years. And when he took pen, the parchment, to write the Gospel of John, there was a very dynamic and unique ministry of the Holy Spirit of God to bring back to his mind and bring to his forefront the words that our Lord said so that it would be laid out for us in the Gospel of John in an infallible and perfect way. But what are we saying? That Jesus affirmed the 39 books of the Old Testament. These are the books that are in Scripture. And then he gave a special promise for those books that would be written in the New Testament. I have one last point, and then we'll be finished for tonight. I want you to note finally number six concerning our Lord's own convictions about the written Word of God. And number six, the Bible is entirely unified. Our Lord taught the extraordinary unity of the Scripture. Think about just the Old Testament. It was a book that was written over, it took over a thousand years to write the book beginning with Moses in approximately 1450 B.C. and all the way down to Malachi or one of the Psalms in approximately 400 A.D., a book that took over a thousand years to write by many different authors, most of whom did not even meet nor know the other authors. It was written in, uh, from all different walks of life. And yet there is, there is an extraordinary unification and unity of this book as it all comes together to form a perfect book. We see this very simply in this way. Jesus referred to the Bible as the Scriptures, plural. The Scriptures, plural. For example, in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, you are mistaken not understanding the Scriptures. And script, the word scripture just simply means writings, graphe, writings from which we get the English word graphics. And when he uses the plural scriptures, it is an allusion to the, to the complexity and the multifacetedness of the Old Testament. Many authors in many locations over many centuries covering many subjects 
Mark 14, 29, every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures, plural, an indication that there was more than one prophecy that was being fulfilled in this, that there were many prophecies that were being fulfilled in his life. Most of all, at the end of his life, as he approached the cross and yet In other places, Jesus spoke of the Bible in the singular as the Scripture. John 10, verse 35, If he called them gods to whom the Word of God came, and the Scripture, singular, cannot be broken. This is one of the amazing qualities of the Bible. When we take in the New Testament and enlarge this, it was written over a period of some 1,600 years by 40-plus authors living on three different continents, writing in three different languages from all different walks of life. Some of them were kings. Some of them were like a shepherd or a goat herder. One was a a cupbearer to the king. Others were royal statesmen. Some of them were were just fishermen. This, this plethora of, of authors, yet as the, the Scriptures come together, they form the Scripture with one standard of morality, with one plan of salvation, with one path that is laid before us to follow, with one unfolding plan of redemption. This is the miracle of the inspiration of the Word of God. It would be like this. Someone has said, what, can you imagine if there was an executive order sent out from the White House that all 50 states in the United States were to, to have their native stone cut out, put in a box, and crated on a train to Washington, D.C., and 50 crates came from 50 different States And when these boxes were uncrated and the various stones were brought out and as they were laid out, they come together to form perfectly the Washington Monument. And as they come in, every cut and every, every chisel causes these stones to fit together perfectly. It is a seamless fit. Any thinking person would say, that didn't just happen. There was a master architect. There was a master blueprint that sent out the order and the stones were brought in and they had been specified to be cut with just the precision that was needed so that when they come together, it forms one tower and monument. That is precisely what has happened with the Bible. The Scriptures, with all of its authors, with all of its topics, with all of its thrusts, coming together in the providence of God after the apostles had passed off the scene. And as the church pulls these together, they come together and stand as one seamless monument of truth, the Bible. This is God's book. This is way beyond any book that you and I have ever written or would ever read other than this blessed book. 
book, this book alone is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. This book is, is, uh, is milk for our soul that gives us nourishment. This book is sweeter than honey. This book is more valuable than gold. This book is a fire in our bones that when we take it in, our heart burns with passion and love and devotion for God. This book is a hammer that breaks the rocks asunder. How we must learn this book and love this book, and live this book, this is a supernatural book. Divine revelation, supernaturally inspired, verbally entirely inspired, specifically limited and entirely unified. Toward the end of his life, Martin Luther was asked this question. As he looked back over that heroic life that he lived. And as he saw Europe in the turmoil of the crisis of sorting through sola scriptura and the emerging now of a Protestant church, Luther was asked this question, explain the Reformation. Martin Luther said this, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And when, then while I slept, the Word so weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The Word did it all. May the Word do it all in your life, in my life, in this church, in my church, in churches around the world. And if sola scriptura would come back to be the defining issue and the cornerstone, as we would stand upon this blessed book, I believe that we would see a new reformation in our day. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this supernatural book that we hold in our hand. It is the disclosure of your mind and the revelation of your genius to us. We thank you that it is inspired, supernaturally inspired. We thank you for the precision of it. We thank you for the beauty of it. We thank you for the power of it. And its power to affect us and to change us and to transform us, to save us and to sanctify us. God, we thank you that you have given to us a book that tells us about you. It is a book that tells us about your precious son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a book that has given us comfort in the darkest hours of our lives. It is a book that has provided guidance for us. When the maze of life seemed so confusing, you charted the path for us and revealed it to us through your word. We thank you for the conviction that has come to our hearts through this book and for the way that it has caused us to love you all the more. May we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as we immerse ourselves in this sacred book. 
We thank you that our Lord has spoken so definitively through the inspiration of the Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. See, I told you it was good. <laughs> that was a great lecture. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.